Each year as college students get ready to graduate, they hold a collective sense of uncertainty. Have I made the right choice for a career? Am I prepared to take this next step? If I work hard and I do well, can I accomplish all my goals? For a fortunate few, although they don't know it at the time, each answer is a resounding yes. In fact, keep doing what you're doing and not only will you succeed, but you'll do it while working alongside the leader of the free world. Today's guest is one of those people. He made the journey from his hometown in Taunton, Mass, to Stonehill College, and eventually to the West Wing. Welcome to On the Hill, a podcast covering all things Stonehill College. This is our first episode, so we have a special treat, an interview with graduate David Seamus, class of 1992. For the past eight years, Seamus served in the Obama White House as a senior advisor and political director, and he just began his next chapter as CEO for the newly formed Obama Foundation. With Seamus, we have Stonehill professor and director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society, Peter Ubertasio, who is graciously serving as guest host today. Take it away, Peter. Well, David, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell me a little bit about your time at Stonehill. What brought you to the college? What memories and takeaways you have from your, your time here? And what keeps you engaged with the Stonehill community? So I started off at a different college for my freshman year. Growing up in Taunton, I was always familiar with Stonehill. But for some reason, I wanted to go off to the big city. So I decided to go to a school in, in Boston. After about a year of that, uh, it just wasn't the right fit for a variety of different reasons. And I had friends who had come here to Stonehill. So I had had occasion during the course of my freshman year to visit them. What struck me immediately, Peter, was just the sense of community that was palpable here, manifested in just the different groups of people who would connect and talk to each other. You really got a sense, as opposed to some other colleges, where there's a sense of isolation as a student tries to deal with the, the newness of a college experience and independence. And so obviously in that atmosphere, you're trying to push the independence and the bound of it. But that's also the moment where you need to have that, that, that embrace of community and friendship and so for me, that was just the most palpable thing. And uh, so I decided to do that, to come here to Stonehill. Uh, that's still the most striking thing. I commuted, so I worked the whole time at a movie theater in Taunton, selling popcorn, making sure that with my flashlight, the folks weren't breaking our long and copious <laughs> rules, but always coming back here to class. It was a great, great place. You had a particular professor yeah. who influenced you. I wonder if you might tell us a little oh bit about goodness. that. Oh, my goodness. Charlie Cerns. <laughs> he, if he was five foot tall, uh, that's a stretch. And by the time, uh, so he was a professor of political science. Uh, he was proud of his Norwegian heritage. He referred to himself as a curmudgeon. And so he was like a mix of Yoda and a Smurf <laughs> with these amazing glasses that always hung at the bridge of his nose. But he was the most engaging teacher that I have ever had. He would tell these stories of working in the Kennedy administration. He would talk in the political science classes, not just about the basics of politics, but into the nuance of power in relationships, in coalitions, and he would bring this to life. 
And what was for me as amazing was, again, growing up in Taunton to immigrant parents, that I was in a class with someone who had worked for a president of the United States. And what that enabled, what that allowed for, was for all of the students to look at him and say, well, we can do that too. Not knowing, obviously, what my path was going to end up being, but Peter, he, if, if the job, if the central motivating factor of a teacher is to know that after a year, you have changed one student's life in a way that you can't imagine, Charlie Cerns, if he didn't have that impact on anybody else, certainly did for me. I love that guy. <laughs> did, did Charlie work with you when you were thinking about going to law school? He taught you constitutional he law, so, which is widely known as one of the more difficult uh, yeah. subjects on campus. He and did, so. and he, I remember an independent study around campaign finance, and he gave me just a horrible grade. <laughs> um, for the right reasons, right? The first iteration, I kind of mailed it in, and it was just the basics. But he wanted much more. And so the rigor that he approached his teaching uh, set the path for me in terms of the application and the way I approached law school, certainly once I got there. And so by the time I was a 1L at BC Law, I felt as if I had already gone through the rigor of Uh, a law school class just because of the way Charlie approached it. Sometimes using a Socratic method as the basic, as the basis of his class, but just the, the exacting expectations that he would put on you all the while being this curmudgeonly lovely individual that you wanted to like. Uh, It was a, uh, again, I was blessed to have him as a teacher. He, he changed my life for the better. So, in between BC Law and your service in the White House, yeah. there's a lot happening, and you're, you're very much attached to your hometown of Taunton, Massachusetts, where, where your parents settled when they immigrated here. I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about that story of how you ended up working for the President of the United States, because it's a series of wonderful yeah. steps, people who you got to know who saw something in you, yeah. a little bit of luck here and there, and, uh, and suddenly you're, you're working right down the hallway from President Obama. Crazy. Uh, lots of luck. So... Uh, I was at BC, and I decided to run for school board even while I was in law school. So it was 1993. I was 23 years of age. And uh, I knocked on 4,000 doors in a primary. I won. But in that campaign, I began to meet people who not only were in local politics but had connections to statewide politics. In that campaign, and then the next one when I ran for school committee, I met a man named John Walsh. John ended up being the campaign manager for an improbable candidate for governor of Massachusetts, a guy who was polling at 3% named Deval Patrick. And so John called me. I I was at that point in county government in Massachusetts. And he said, David, I'd like for you to be a, a debate partner for Deval Patrick. And I had never done a political debate. I had no background in that. But because of my relationship with John, because he knew me, I said, fine, I'll do it. And I figured, Peter, it was going to be one and done. And right, why? Here's a man who was the assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, right? An executive at (laughs) Coca-Cola, 
one of the most extraordinary intellects and I'm going to be his debate partner. <laughs> That's crazy, John. He's like, you'll do fine. Uh, turns out I, I did that set that first session with governor, then just Deval Patrick. Uh, he kept inviting me back for more. We ended up probably doing 20, 25 sessions altogether. We became friends. He then once he won and probably said, I would like for you to be my deputy chief of staff even though I had just been reelected Register of Deeds. Um, interestingly, Peter, I went to my mom, and I said, Mom, you know, my life is going to be a little bit different. I, I can't just be here in Taunton at the registry. I'm going to take a job in Boston. She started to cry. <laughs> I said, but Mom, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work for the new governor. You like the new governor. But she said, yeah, but his term is four years, and then you're going to be unemployed. You should stay at the registry it's fine, and do that. Obviously, I, I went with the governor. That then, another improbable connection, a guy named Barack Obama decides to run for president. Nobody really expects him to win. Deval Patrick endorses him, even though he knows that Senator Clinton is going to win Massachusetts, and she likely will be the nominee of the party, but he believed that was the right thing to do. Barack Obama wins the presidency, I go to Governor Patrick and I said, if there is any way that I could serve in any agency of the federal government, I would love to be able to serve at this moment in time, right? It just infused with that sense of possibility and hope in 2008, and I wanted to be part of that in any capacity. Unbeknownst to me, Governor Patrick calls a guy named David Axelrod, who had been his campaign strategist in 2006, whom I had not met, and said, I don't know if there's a place for him, but you should take a look at him. Axelrod nicely turned over my uh, resume to the director of policy, a woman named Melody Barnes. I was interviewed by her and Heather Higginbottom, her deputy. They didn't have a job for me. So Heather went back to Ax and said, we don't have anything for him, but maybe you do. Peter, it was the day before the inauguration in 2009. I am withdrawing money at the Ronald Reagan building in Washington, D.C. with my wife, Shauna. There are a million people in Washington. My cell phone rings. I answer it. There's a guy who's purporting to be David Axelrod <laughs> on my phone. I replied, yeah, right. I'm Barack Obama. <laughs> He said, you're not. <laughs> I said, an expletive. And then we began a conversation, which he ended by saying, I would like to interview you. I can't tomorrow, but the day after. Um, so two days later, Wednesday after the inaugural, I am crossing through the threshold of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, walking into the West Wing, more terrified than I have ever been in my life. <laughs> Five days later, I am the deputy to David Axelrod, who is a senior advisor to the President of the United States. None of this was a plan, right? It was this amazing luck and connection and Walsh and Duvall and Axe and the fact that Axelrod, after a two-year campaign, is in the White House without a deputy Right, uh, is... <laughs> Not something you would expect. <laughs> and so I am, I won the political lottery. And I reminded myself of that every single day that I was there. 
I want to talk about uh, a couple of those days yeah. uh, that you were there because uh, you've been, uh, when you were in the White House, always very generous in uh, receiving groups of Stonehill students when we would come down and, and visit the city. Um, and there, there's one story that you, you told that I hope you might relay again, and this is the time the uh, president invited you to travel with him to Portugal. It's one of the deficiencies of podcasts is you, you don't see folks welling up. Um, so <laughs> for the record, for, we to insert, you, you he's, well he's welling up. Story. Yes, I, uh, I, I, I am a, an emotional Portuguese-American guy. Um, so Axelrod in uh, late 2010 asked me to go to Portugal with him because the president was going to a NATO conference in Lisbon. He just wanted me to go because he knew my parents were from Portugal, so it was a nice thing to do. I had no official role. Essentially, I was tagging along. I think Axe just wanted me to give him restaurant recommendations in Lisbon. <laughs> just, I could do that. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea, it, it, which I ended up doing. Uh, Gibbs ordered uh, a meal. I think it was like eels. <laughs> and so we're all looking at Gibbs, and he's like, what is this? I'm like, those are eels, man. Um, but I digress. So as we're, as we're landing, first time I had been on Air Force One, we're about to land at the airport in Lisbon, and Peter, all I could think of was, that was the same airport that over 20 years before, 30 years before, Antonio and Diolinda Simas, my parents, had left on a plane to the United States, not knowing if they would ever go back to their native country to begin a journey where they didn't know where it was going to take them, but just because they wanted a better life for themselves and the children they didn't have. And here I am landing on Air Force One, this international symbol of America at that same airport. We get out of the plane. We take this amazing motorcade through the city with tens of thousands of people waving Portuguese and American flags. I, I thought I was back in, uh, you know, Taunton for the, uh, for the, <laughs> at a PACC festival. Um, then we approached the presidential palace. And I remember stories that this is where the dictator, Salazar, uh, ran the dictatorship for years and years and years. And there I am walking in. Before I walk in, Axelrod says, oh, I'm not feeling well. And I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do about it? He's like, well, you're going to take my place. I said, to do what? It's like, just take notes. I'm like, notes? <laughs> so all of a sudden, I am either the seventh or eighth in a line of people, the first of which of, is Barack Obama, followed by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, followed by national security and military and then bringing up the rear notepad in hand is me the president introduces me to the the president of portugal as this young portuguese american advisor of his and peter i, I don't remember what i was scribbling i'm sure they were just incomprehensible <laughs> doodles but it was just a moment i won't forget only to be surpassed by uh, on the final day of the conference, he finishes his press conference about troop levels in Afghanistan. As he's walking down the hallway, uh, all of a sudden I look at Axelrod and he's got this smirk on his face. So I know something is up. I don't know who the target of the mischief is going to be, though. I know that look. All of a sudden I hear the president of the United States, Barack Obama, say in that very familiar voice, 
Seamus, where are you? I wanted to pass out. <laughs> uh, I, I said in, in the, you know, the, the voice, you remember the Brady Bunch when Peter yes. was going through his it's issues? Voice is cracking. That's exactly right. I said, here. Um, he grabs me by the shoulder, walks me up to a bank of Portuguese reporters, and he says, ladies and gentlemen of Portugal, I want you to meet my young Portuguese-American advisor, David Seamus. David, say hello to the people of Portugal. So I busted into my like worst Portuguese, saying hello to my aunts and un- uncles, hola tios, hola tios, and waving uh, at the camera. We go back into Air Force One, and he comes to the back of the plane, and I'm still misty-eyed, given what happened. I said, Mr. President, why did you do that? And he said, David, because I remember how meaningful it was to my family when I was a senator and I went to Kenya. I wanted your family to have the same feeling my family did. Peter, it was one of the most decent, thoughtful, and generous, and simple things that anybody has ever done to me. And as we're landing at Andrews Air Force Base, my flip phone is ringing, and it's my mom, in tears, because the Portuguese newscast that night all led with Barack Obama introducing her son. And so her brothers are calling awash in tears. And my mom and dad, my dad got on the phone and he basically, to paraphrase, said something like, you know, the immigrant life is hard and you never know what path it takes. But what I heard today made it all worthwhile. That's great. It's uh, now you know why every time I think of it. (laughs) You get a little misty. Yeah, a little bit. And it also ratifies your earlier decision to go work for that uh, governor of Massachusetts. Yes. Your mom was not so sure it would work out in the long run. And I, to this day, (laughs) even leaving the White House, you know, it's like, come home. (laughs) Maybe you can be the register of deeds again. I'm like, no, Barry is doing fine. (laughs) I should say also that when when you come to Stonehill and speak, your your fellow registers of deeds come to hear you. Mm. So there's great affection in that local community for for you as well. I wonder if we might just talk about one more thing about your, yeah. your time in the White House and, uh-huh. and, and you know, being at, this, at the center of a, a storm when the Affordable Care Act was yeah. um, going through Congress and then, you know, had to be implemented mm-hmm. and, and you, were, you were tasked afterward with some technical issues yeah. with, with that. What, tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is like to work in that kind of environment dealing with such a large, complex, uh, historical yeah. uh, piece of legislation like the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, it was the most complicated piece of business. Um, first, it's a fifth or a sixth of the economy. And so anything you do, the ramification and the impact is massive. Secondly, because it was so polarized and partisan, it immediately devolved into a blue team versus red team. Thirdly, the reason healthcare politics are as difficult as they are, because there is no other issue that literally impacts life and death in a personal and salient way. So that the, the concept of loss aversion is primary. That even if you have issues with an insurance company or the system writ large, once you start hearing about reform, You don't want anything to be disrupted because even though you're not satisfied, you don't know and don't have faith or hope that what comes next is better. And so you're always politically, from a message perspective and a substantive perspective, at a disadvantage. So that's the predicate. 
the worst moment I had there um, at the White House, and it lasted over three to four weeks, Peter, was with the rollout of healthcare.gov. Um, on the day on October 1st, 2013, which was the day of the government shutdown also, I was to go out and give um, uh, out to the North Lawn of the White House to do some television around the government shutdown. As I'm walking out to do the first TV hit, one of my colleagues says, well, if uh, there are some glitches or some problems with healthcare.gov, here's what we know so far, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was armed with basic rudimentary responses, but you, you don't know. So there's a complete asymmetry, which is the problem. After three or four or five days, what became obvious was that the depth of the problem with the website exceeded anything that anyone could anticipate. And there was no one within the existing bureaucracy of the federal government in an IT environment that could fix it. So here's what's happening. Government shutdown ends after two weeks, 13 days, I forget what it is. All of a sudden, all of the press attention turns to this. Members of Congress, Democratic senators, Uh, and uh, Democratic House members all of a sudden are besieged because the news coverage every single day is with this epic failure around healthcare.gov. Meeting after meeting on the Hill and back at the White House about what are you going to do to fix it, even though literally we have to now bring in folks from Google and Salesforce and Apple basically on detail-y basis a SWAT team to come in, diagnose the problem while people are trying to use it, mm-hmm. figure out in like a, a duct tape and bubble gum fashion what you can fix, knowing that if you really don't get it ready by December 1st, this thing is going to shut down. And the reason it's going to shut down, because all of a sudden some Democratic senators and House members will be very, very open to the proposal to suspend it until you can fix it. Mm -hmm. If that had happened, it's over. So, Peter, the heroes in this story are, there's one guy named Mikey Dickerson who came over from Google and basically heroically put together a team of Silicon Valley 20-year-olds who devoted 24 hours a day for three to four to five weeks in fixed things that they did not believe could be fixed when they first got there. It it was the most tense, impactful drama playing out in real time. And what made it more intense for us, and especially for the president, it was the one time, the closest time that I ever saw him get angry, was because of the horrible consequences if we didn't get it right. Can you imagine all of a sudden we, we devote so much time and energy because of our belief that we need to get health care right for people who don't have it, and it collapses because of a technical problem, mm-hmm. right? And so um, end of story, Mikey and his team of young men and women um, came in, solved the problem, and because of them... Uh, and the millions of others who made it possible in the first instance. But because of them, 22 million people today have health care coverage 
that didn't have it before. What's the lesson? Uh, if you were writing, you know, in, in preparing people for service uh, in the future, you know, this White House, another White House, um, is there what lesson can we learn from that? How do we learn from something like that to in an attempt to not when unveiling complex public policies like that yeah. uh, pass along to the to the next David Seamus and the yeah. next White House. So so this it's a hard example just because of the technical mm. IT procurement in the federal government and I assume most state governments are broke it's broken. Uh it's a function of uh, outdated regulatory system et cetera et cetera. But underneath all of that, right? Why did we not know earlier? that essentially the system wasn't ready to go, hmm. right? Uh, my advice that I would give to any incoming administration, in the White House, you are in a reactive mode every single day. You are getting incoming in ways that you couldn't anticipate at nine o'clock in the morning. By noon, you're putting out a fire someplace that you couldn't imagine. If you do not have open lines of communication where people believe that they can come to you with a problem without consequences. Here is a flag. Here is a problem. If you can't get that right, then the magnitude of the challenges that will eventually get to you will be much more severe. So that's the first thing. You need to set up a culture where people believe and feel that they can give you bad news because essentially that's what you receive in the White House. As the president says, by the time something gets to the president's desk, it means everybody else before him couldn't resolve it. It, by definition, is the hardest thing to, to resolve. And extending that out further, anytime something comes to the White House, it's not good. It means someone at the agencies couldn't resolve it and kick it up. So you need the clear lines uh, of communication. Internally, the most important thing in any West Wing is clear lines of authority in a structured process so that when a crisis hits, people know who owns it, who's going to be at the table, what's the decision-making process, how do we ensure that anyone who has an equity has an ability to fully weigh in because your responsibility as a staffer to the president, an advisor to the president, is to go to him or eventually her and say, Mr. President, here is the problem. Here is why we believe the problem occurred. Here are three solutions. Here is our recommendation. A majority of your staff believes this is the right thing to do. A minority of your staff in cabinet secretaries believe it isn't. He decides. Mm -hmm. but, but in a crisis, the rigidity and the lines in the process where you test and test and test, that's the most important thing for Frankly, Peter, not only any White House, but I would argue any kind of executive function at all. It's easy to do your set pieces. It's really hard when all of a sudden your plan, uh, what was Mike Tyson's line? It's, it's uh, you know, everybody's got a plan until I punch him in the nose. <laughs> That's know, great. So. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I butchered that, so apologies to Iron Mike. <laughs> Well, David, thank you. It's been about 25 years, we learned today, since uh, you graduated from Stonehill. We really appreciate you coming back today. Peter, it was when my mom and dad dropped me off this morning, although the campus looks different, there was a parade, a procession of hundreds upon hundreds of essentially 17 and 18-year-olds 
who are thinking about whether or not uh, to come here. And I was so jealous. <laughs> what, what I wouldn't do, even knowing everything that's happened, right, to be once again at this moment in time, an 18 or a 19-year-old student in, in a moment of maximum possibility and potential, but also uh, an inflection point in not only in the nation's history and global history. It, you just get the sense of opportunity and possibility when you're around students. And so it was such a joy to be here today. So thanks for the invitation. Well, and the you're time. welcome. You're always welcome. Thanks for the time. Thanks, David. Of course. That, that sets a high bar for future episodes. Special thanks to David Seamus for being here today and for his steadfast dedication to the college. Thanks to Professor Ubertasio for hosting and to Professor Scott Cohen, our podcast guru, and Melissa Duffy, our tech wizard and audio editor. We'd love to get your feedback and ideas for future episodes, so email me, Mike Shalansky, and Martin McGovern at media-relations at stonehill.edu. Check back soon for another episode of On the Hill from Stonehill College, and thanks for listening.